0: Welcome to Myanmar in a Podshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodian Abighausen and today we are going to record a kind of special episode because unfortunately one of our guests is prevented, uh, but our other guest is so interesting that we didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk to Martin Smith. Um, and we would like to talk about like the role of the ethnic armed organizations, about the current struggle. And also about the historic, maybe parallels and differences we can find. Please let me first introduce uh, Martin Smith, uh, who is a well-known independent analyst who has researched and reported about Myanmar and ethnic nationality affairs since the early 1980s for a variety of media, non-governmental and academic organizations. And he's the author uh, of the well-known book, uh, Burma, Insurgency and Politics of Ethnicity, And um, he also wrote the book, Ethnic Groups in Burma, Development, Democracy, and Human Rights. And um, there is another one, a rather small, but very uh, uh, readable and interesting book, like State of Strife, the Dynamics of Ethnic Conflict in Burma. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah, maybe as this is a bit like more personal setup, as we are only two persons talking, I maybe would like to know or ask a first question like, when the news broke for Myanmar that there is a coup, uh, do you remember what, what was your first thought and your first feeling about it?
1: Yes, I mean, it's a very good question. It, it was both a surprise and not a surprise, because the military, especially for long-time observers and, of course, the, the people of Burma, they've essentially controlled the governments in different forms for over a half a century. And... Um, In many ways, military rule, the aspects of military rule are a way of life. But on the other hand, during the previous decade, there had been this notion of quasi-civilian democracy, which I think fooled a lot of uh, newcomers, international observers especially. But having said that, because there had been advances in the previous decade, I I would say the timing of the coup, and especially the severity of actions which followed, the coup itself could have been solved, but the, the, the actions were so brutal it really made you wonder what they were doing, because most people would say, well, they had a lot of power in their hands under the 2008 constitution. And violence, conflict in the country are not new, but it was really difficult to grasp, first of all, what they were trying to achieve by the coup, which seemed to come down to one man, Senior General Minong Lai. But they didn't seem to have any roadmap out of it. You know, the Tatmador, the Sittat, you know, they've, they've been controlling the country in different guises. And there was no immediate indication what ex- essentially they were trying to do. And so, in a way, the coup brought the challenges of the country to long, you know, to sight. They'd always been in in sight, uh, but to some extent they'd been neglected. But now you can see why the resistance is so high amongst young people, especially because they know what they've lost. They've known that this coup essentially seemed like a road to nowhere. And that's what confused everybody, even the regime's defenders, even people in neighbouring countries who sort of felt, well, we have to deal with the military. They were troubled by this, too.
0: As you have a lot of contacts in different ethnic uh, groups and uh, those organizations, do you remember what when you talked to them after the coup, what was their first reaction, their first thoughts?
1: Well, I think one of the sad things to say is that for too long, people have regarded the ethnic problems as somehow peripheral or sec- secondary issues. Whereas, in fact, as we're seeing now, it's absolutely a central crisis, among a number of crises, but it's a central crisis. So for the ethnic armed movements, you got to remember the KNU have been under armed struggle since 1949, the KAO since 1961. So, So the, the fact of armed struggle and military rule was not new to them. I think... What would unite them with the young people of the CDM movement and the NLD and the Burma majority in the center was the, the scale of the regression in conflict. Uh, because we, we can argue about the exact semantics, but the country is in its most severe state of civil war and breakdown since independence in 48. I mean, there have been other cycles of conflict. Uh, in 1962 against the Burmese way to socialism military government. And that included, you know, the communist party and so on. But that was pushed into the ethnic, um, borderlands after 88. There was another new cycle of conflict. And we can talk about this in a minute because I think many of the hesitations you're seeing amongst ethnic armed organizations now is because they have many experiences of not only the military government, they have many experiences of dealing with opposition movements, electoral, communist um, and, and, and different sort of parts of the country. So they are these are not naive people in the ethnic borderlands. These movements are veteran. They might be very tired. They might not appear to have advanced very far, but they've continued to control their lands and they've continued to promote their political v- visions. And that, in a way, is why you're seeing slightly different responses amongst some of the ethnic groups in comparisons to others.
0: We can come back to this hesitation by some groups uh, to support or to basically join the revolution. But um, I would like to talk a little bit about, as you said, there are these cycles of violence. They have been with varying intensity throughout the history. And you already mentioned that this is the most violent since uh, independence. But what would you say is like, what does this do, this kind of militarization and continuous violent conflict in a country? especially when it has such a violent history?
1: It's very desperate. It's, it's because there have been warnings. You know, if you go back 40 years ago, Burma used to be called the Yugoslavia or Albania of Asia, or, or something like a Cuba. People used to think, just leave it alone. It might have its problems. It might have a military government. It might have human rights abuses, but it's, it, it's doing it under its own steam. It's not interfering with anybody. But of course, that, that's not really a good enough answer. Uh, you can have no sort of uh, equivalence or equivocation where human rights violations are concerned. So it's what is so desperate about this is that now the world has woken up and Myanmar is now put in the same category as a conflict divided country and also on the scale of loss and humanitarian suffering with Ukraine and Syria. And of course, if you've known the country, in a sense, that's always been true. You know, there has always been this deep Broken failed state. What I'm noticing interestingly now is that there was an international narrative, and especially among the ethnic Bama majority, they always used to say, Well, yes, these ethnic minorities are a problem, but one day there'll be peace. We just got to give them some rights and and they'll be happy. Now I'm hearing young Bama people saying, Well, is Myanmar really a country? Are we really an independent country? Do we actually have the qualifications for this? And, And I think to put that in context, Colonial rule, the first thing it does is take away from any country is its history. So many post-colonial countries have to reassemble themselves. You have to remember that Burma was under the British India Empire to 1937. So its creation, if you like, came under British rule. It didn't actually exist as we know it before the British came. It was a very complex place in the world then, part of the sub-Asian, Southeast Asian, but there was no Myanmar state as such. So we can look at Sri Lanka, we can look at Bangladesh, Pakistan, India. They've all had very evolved and complicated experiences getting to independence. What I would say is they've all moved on in their own ways, in very clear ways. Myanmar has still not put its post-colonial problems to to bed. They still haven't got a clear identity of who or what Myanmar is. And that is what this current fight is all about. People are going back to very basic definitions of saying, well, is this a country? And if so, what should it be and how should it be governed? Those questions have not been answered in over 60 years of military rule.
0: So maybe you can help us and our listeners to understand a little bit better, or maybe we can categorize different ethnic groups and different groups like Full supporters, hesitant supporters, or maybe those who have more a wait-and-see approach, maybe you can help us to sort like the big players who are out there to better understand who is there and what might be their goal or agenda.
1: Yes, and I think I'd like to predicate that answer by saying something because uh, about the Myanmar military, because there's always this sense that, okay, well, the Myanmar military are dealing with all these problems, and how can you solve these problems with such complexity and such diversity? I think we need to turn that on its head, and I think the events since the coup have shown that. This complexity, this diversity is what the Myanmar military wants, it's what they play at, and it's what they use as a mechanism to keep in control. Now, that, that sounds a very facile, easy thing to say, but after 60 years in control of government, you have to ask, who have they actually defeated? Which group has they actually brought down? All these movements have survived, and not only have they survived, groups like the KNU and KIO and the, the WA, the United WA State Army, they control large parts of the country amongst their own people. They continue to protect their land. They continue to promote a different interest. So the Myanmar military have never been that strong in terms of defeating opposition. What they are trying to use is conflict as a means, and any means, to roll out the state. So if you have a peace process, if you have ceasefire talks, if you have an election... That is their agenda.
0: Would you say it's a kind of a continuation of Divide et Impera, which was brought by the British to the country?
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, I would say there's one qualification which is not very good. A very bright um, Rakhine academic this uh, week has written about this. And he, he says it's not so much divide and rule as divide and contain, because they're actually not defeating people. They're trying to contain resistance around the country. And if that means creating more resistance... With the goal of maining control, they're quite happy to do that because we have a very complex landscape. So I would say if you go to different parts of the country amongst the ethnic peoples themselves, on the ground they're not really that divided. Brang Seng, the old Kachin leader, he always used to say that if the Burmese state was united at the center, the ethnic question could be easily solved because the ethnic people don't have a problem about what they're looking for. They don't even have a problem amongst themselves. Their problems comes from the instability of the Myanmar state. So after independence, you had the UNU government and you had the communists. After 62, you had the Myanmar military, you had the communists, and you had UNU's armed PDP. After 88, you had the NLD, and then you had the NCGUB. Now you've got the NUG, and you've got the SAC. So if you're looking at this from the point of view of the Wa or Kachin, and they're seeing that the Burmese people are divided amongst themselves, who should they ally with? Who should they put their bets on? And it's a really life-saving, life-defining decision because you make the wrong call. You could be in the political wilderness for decades. And that is why some groups try ceasefires and some groups say, no, we've had enough of that. We're going to go back to armed conflict. So it means that there's always going to be this instability. The difference since the coup is that this instability is in central Myanmar as well. The Bama majority people have also had enough of this. And that is why you've got armed resistance in Magway and Sagang. So the armed conflict, which is always identified with the minority peoples, is actually a nationwide problem. But amongst the ethnic groups, what they have been doing for the last two years is struggling with this division in the Burmese state. They've got their objectives. They've got various tactics and formations trying to bring that forward. But at the moment, they're having to deal with this incredibly conflict driven, conflict divided, fragmentary political system in the country, and it's very difficult for them to come up with a a united stand.
0: In a way, if I got understood right, what you said is that the basic instability of the whole country comes from the instability within the Bama majority. But there are also EO's fighting each other for parts, and there is like mistrust within Chan State. There are different actors not trusting each other. But you, you would say if, I, if, the, if the central question is solved, those would be questions which can be solved easily afterwards. Is that
1: right? Yes. And I would say that um, if you take the number of armed groups there are in the country and the number of armed combatants, the level of violence between those groups is relatively low. And if you point to a situation where there is armed conflict between, behind this, nine times out of 10, you will find that the Myanmar military is behind it. So it's plain to divide and rule. So the the conflict everybody is aware of is between the RCSS and the Ta'ang and the Shan State Progress Party in the north. Well, that was because after the RCSS, which incidentally was a group that the Myanmar military said they would never make a ceasefire with, up until 2011, they called them a breakaway group from Kunsa's ceasefire, um, Mongtai Army then we won't talk to them. After 2011, they changed their minds. Suddenly the RCSS become their favoured group. After the RCSS signed the NCA, they were allowed to move troops into the north of the state, where the Ta'ang and SSPP, which have taken a strong political stand against the Myanmar military, are based, and that set off conflict. So so I I, I think that the, the bigger danger is how these movements are fragmented by especially the Tatmadaw's uh, tactics of militia groups uh they're best known as Sit, but the larger ones former ceasefire groups have be- been formed into border guard forces and you take a group like the former dkba you know they have 13 battalions these are not small groups so they're backed by the Myanmar military and that means that communities are divided amongst themselves so so it's not only a question of political ideology even in terms of security and day-to-day livelihoods and the economy, they're being divided by these divide and rule tactics. But I think what is interesting is that behind the scenes, you will actually find there's very little difference in political ideology between these groups.
0: But why is the, the Myanmar military so successful to convincing and splitting up those groups? What is it that, that they all can offer them that they say, okay, we, w- we will go along, we will play your game?
1: Well, I think, first of all, they're clever at it. They also fighters. This this is not like some of the other uh, armies in, in neighboring countries in Asia. This is an army which fights, um, and they and they are probably the last army still active who were trained by Imperial Japan, and they're still using those ruthless. Uh, we, we you know you, you're trained from day one you never surrender you have absolute loyalty and they make a point of recruiting people often orphans and you know people who are a bit, bit disillusioned or poor so that there's this incredible machine uh, and it's built around a very narrow elite now an ethnic bama elite it used to be more multi-ethnic and so first of all the tatmador is very good at what it does and it's not prepared it's not afraid, as we're seeing at the moment, to lose lots of life if that means what it means to stay in power. And it's why um you, you could make, uh, you know, the joke that the NLD never understood this because the Rama military would fight to the last man to remain in power, whereas the NLD seemed to think they could gain power by an election. Now you've got the National Unity Government saying, no, no, we better try armed struggle too. Just just having political goals is not going to make a difference. That's the first thing. But I, I think that there's a really important point here. We'll we, talk about the ethnic parties afterwards. But I think that. It's taken time. The Myanmar army has certainly become a state within a state. There's no doubt about that. It has its own economy. It has its own recruitment. It has its own political spheres. It has its own interests. Institutionally, it's the strongest in the country, although it doesn't control the whole country. But I think there's a second stage. And I think what we need to look at, after the experiences of genuine attempts to change the country through engagement and reform, the peace process, the constitution, and so on, um, I think what the Myanmar state is is more representative of what Ernst Frankl, who was writing about Germany in the 1930s, used to call a prerogative state. A prerogative state, he used to call it a dual state. There's the normative state like Ministry of Health and Justice and Education, and you have the prerogative state. And foreigners think, oh, well, we just engage with the normative state, we'll we'll change it. But of course, in a prerogative state, the Myanmar military have all these vested interests, arbitrary arrests, extrajudicial executions, forming of paramilitaries, auxiliaries, control of the economy. and, And that's what they're doing now. So in fact, whatever goes on in the country, in terms of political terms, economic terms, engagement terms, what the West would call normative terms, there has always been this prerogative state. And since 2021, we have seen all those tactics come out, especially, let's say, the artillery shelling and Bombardment of villages where there's resistance. But at the same time, the Myanmar military will make ceasefires with groups that they consider their enemies if that's what's to stay in power. So it's a very negative, destructive force at the moment. But I don't think the Myanmar people are alone in recognizing this now. There there is nobody who's naive enough to think that this present regime has the solution. People are beginning to see that this is a regime which is only interested in power for its own sake. And it's not showing a vision for the whole country, only state control.
0: So you said that there is this kind of playing the different groups against each other. So from this perspective, then it may be even good for the Tatmadaw that there are so many new militias, PDFs now coming up so that the whole country gets like divided in even smaller and smaller pieces. Would you agree with
1: that? Um, Probably. The thing is, is that they're not doing it very well. I think what you've got to look at is after 88, when they faced a similar point of collapse, they came up with the ethnic ceasefire strategy, which was allowed really because of the collapse of the Communist Party of Burma. And you saw from the mutinies from the communists who were well armed, the emergence of the Wa, the Kokang, and one or two other groups. Um, and that changed the politics along the China border in the northeast. So the regime took a gamble back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and said, OK, we'll offer these groups ceasefires. It was a kind of holding device. But the groups along the China border were war-weary, so they, they made ceasefires. At the same time, down on the Thai border, you had the KNU, KMPP, New York State Party, these groups. They were supporting the democratic opposition, especially the NCGB and so on. So the regime was able to play them off against each other. They made ceasefires in the northeast. And they put all their military operations against their main opponents in the southeast. And that gained them, let's say, 20 years in office. Since 2011, they began to mess around. They made some mistakes. They made peace finally in the southeast. KNU, RCSS, KMPP all made ceasefires. But then they turned against the Kachin and the Kokang and the uh, uh, Ta'ang, who had they had ceasefires with. And at the same time, you had the Rohingya genocide and then the Arakan army come up in the west of the country. So even under the quasi-civilian transition, they were trying to play one side off against another, but it was already unstable. So when the coup happened, groups like the Kachin and the Ta'ang and Kokang and the Arakan army were already very, very suspicious of what the Myanmar military was up to. Now you've got the groups in the southeast, like the Karen and Kareni taking up arms, the whole situation's exploded. So the military is desperately tying its tactics of divide and rule. But at the moment, it's continuing to lose ground and it doesn't really have enough in its hands to offer anybody except the most opportunistic, the smallest, most fragmentary groups are the ones who are gravitating towards it. It's the ones who really have very little else in in their hands who are doing that. You'll find elsewhere the stronger groups like the WA, who still have a ceasefire, or the KAO who are fighting, they're still sitting on the fence before really making a long-term strategy how to deal with the regime.
0: What I get now from what you say is like the impression that as long as they play these games, this is a permanent thing which can never come to any stability because if you, I don't know, pacify the West, then you will have problems in the North. And if you have a deal with the North and the South, so it's, it's like an instability written into this kind of strategy. Would, would you agree with that?
1: I, I can tell you a funny story. In one of the books I wrote, I wrote a chapter called Insurgency as a Way of Life and i met a senior army leader and uh, he mentioned to me he'd read my book and he said you know in your book there's a chapter we like and i said what's that and he said insurgency is a way of life and then he paused and he pointed to himself and he said from our side too this this this, this is their mentality you remember after 88 it took them until 2011 to introduce a new system of government after the 62 coup, they took until 74 to come up with a constitution. So at the moment, we're only sort of just two and a half years into another incarnation of military rule, and they're talking about elections, and they're talking about a census and so on. But there's actually no real evidence that they're going to come up with any kind of political approach. And the crazy thing is that if Minong Line took the advice of people like your, um, uh, Sasakawa, your Mr. Sasakawa, the Japanese go-between, and said, look, you could be the savior of the country, you could be the peacemaker. I think there would be a huge sea change overnight. None of this would be need to be happening. But the, the military at the moment, under the present leadership, is not interested in any kind of alternative option. And that's why I'm being dogmatic, but also that's only reflecting the degree of opposition. And I think there's another point that gets lost sight of here. We could talk about the differences in the opposition, and, and we'll go into more detail in a second. But I think this is a deflection from what the United Nations General Assembly understand the big problem now is the illegitimacy of this regime. You know, there are international laws in this. It doesn't control the country. there are three litmus tests. It doesn't control the country. it doesn't have any legitimacy like an election or constitution. and also it doesn't follow international norms and practices. I mean, it's under investigation by the ICC, ICJ and IIMM. so So really, we can talk about the problems of the opposition, but we've got to start off with just how illegitimate this regime is and how destructive this is to anybody who's trying conflict resolution. So we know that the NCA process under the previous regime and the constitution reform of 2008 didn't work. Everybody is now thinking, well, what on earth do we do? And of course, at the same time, the Myanmar army is dropping bombs on villages, whether by artillery or by air. It's very difficult for people to organise and put themselves in a position where they say, okay, this is what we want to do. This is our solution. This is our goal. There are lots of goals. There are lots of solutions out there, but it's very difficult for people to come together and be any any meaningful context to putting these together. That is the tragedy right now. And it's it's a real tragedy that the international community can't put greater pressure on this to stop all the killing. I mean, just to give a figure, over 3 million people are IDPs or refugees right now. Over 4,000, around 4,000 civilians have been killed by the military. And over 20,000 combatants have been killed in fighting. This is an absolute humanitarian catastrophe.
0: We all know, like right from the start, there was a lot of talk about unity. It's like a catchphrase in Myanmar. Everybody's always talking about unity. But honestly, uh, whenever somebody talks about unity in Myanmar context, I get suspicious because I have the feeling maybe we should talk about diversity first. So anyway, so what do you see? Like are the chances that all those different actors come together? and maybe we will get enough weight to really push out the Tatmadaw?
1: Okay, so I think I think there are many things we could say. We could talk structurally. For example, up on the China border mainly, the, there's um, the groups of the FPNCC, which are the Wa and Kokang and the Kachin, Taang and Shan and so on. And they, they, they certainly have a, a kind of strategy of working together, whether in ceasefires with the government or not. And it's very much focused on the China border. And then you have a remnant group of NCA signatories, but it's only about five of them now, and they're the smallest groups who are still trying to engage on the on the on the ceasefires. And then you have groups like the CNF, especially and and KNU, which are now supporting the uh, NUG and the PDFs. You know, so these are you know different responses. But I think what is then gets interesting if you want to go into the detail. Many people have been surprised by how over the last three or four years. The two groups, sorry, two, two to four groups, which have become strong counterintuitively against what many people thought, the Arakan army, the KMPP, the TNLA and the MNDA, the Kokang, have all become stronger. And I think part of that is that they were already ahead of the curve of the coup. You see, the Arakan, those groups, uh, with the exception of the KMPP, um, they weren't really allowed to take part in the peace transition before. They weren't part of the Panglong meetings. They weren't part of the NCA. The Arakan army were no great fans of the NLD, neither the Ta'ang or Kokang. And then, of course, the KMPP. What did the NLD do in office? They tried to build a statue of Aung San. So the Karini youth were quite politicised before the coup. What you have now is a very awake generation in those areas, which many people never saw happening. People, in a sense, looked down on them. Now people look at the Arakan army, who have got a quasi-ceasefire at the moment, and saying... Well, these guys have worked out how to do it for themselves. There is no narrative script that you can or cannot do certain things. They're showing that by innovation and nationalism and building up their you know nationality movement, they can actually make advances. So, so you, you get that kind of strength coming out of the ethnic groups right now. Whereas you've got other groups like the KIO and KNU, especially, are very good military organizations. They're political organizations as well, but they know how to fight. They've got decades of experience. So they've been doing a lot of training and, and helping, you know, other resistance movements spread, you know, as a way, as a kind of buffer. And you can be sure that the Wa who are the strongest force in the country, are using all these other groups um, as a buffer so that they don't get a situation one day where they're the last group left and the Myanmar military come for them. So I think one of the difficulties here is whether we're talking about the Myanmar military or the opposition. We have to make a distinction between what their objectives are and what their tactics are to remain in position, because it's so complicated. In a way, the Myanmar military, its objectives and its tactics are the same thing. But with the ethnic opposition, the NUG, they have a real problem over finding tactics, how to bring about their objectives. That's where there are differences in the opposition.
0: Can you give an example for this difference between objective and, and tactics?
1: Yeah. The, the best one, with, without doubt, is the NLD. I think the, and, and after 88, and I, I followed those events very closely, um, when the NCGUB was formed, and of course it was formed by NLD MPs, including Aung San Suu Kyi's cousin, Dr. Sen Win, who actually wasn't NLD, but he was part of the same movement. They were really caught. Do they support armed struggle or not? Because the NLD didn't. So you have this rather odd situation. The NCGUB is allied with all the EAOs like the KNU and KMPP and New Mon State Party, but it's not really supporting armed struggle. So that many many ethnic groups are very doubtful. So even now with the NUG, there is this kind of doubt because the NUG has embraced armed struggle. But there's still question marks about what the NLD would really do. So if Aung San Suu Kyi was released, would she turn around and say, oh, no, I don't approve of this? And what would the Burma majority think? You know, has the situation moved on so much that the agenda has changed? Nobody really knows. So this central question of armed struggle, and we've got to remember that armed struggle is is such a bitter decision to make. You can start arms armed struggle easily, but ten, twenty, thirty years later you might still be conducting it. That 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 is the trouble. So that's that's at the heart of some of the division right now.
0: You would say there is a kind of lack of clarity? Yes. Uh, absolutely. Do you see any person, any organization, any group, any institution, whatever, who could bring this clarity to the opposition?
1: No, I I don't at present. I'd be very naive if I said so. Um, And I think also the international community hasn't particularly helped, because they've recognized, as I was saying earlier, that the key issue is the illegitimacy of the um, SAC. So they've not recognized the um, SAC at the UN General Assembly, haven't recognized their ambassador, but nor have they recognized the NUG they made a compromise decision of keeping on the former NLD ambassador. So that's an incredibly important signal of international recognition about the nature of civil war and division. But it also shows the international community also don't really have a clear vision And so you've got the ASEAN five-point principles, you've got the one-point-five movement, you've got Mr. Sasakawa, you've got lots of international policies of engagement trying to resolve the conflict, but no one's really come up with a strategy which works. And that is exactly amongst the opposition. What I would say is there are some very, very bright new generation leaders who are making a difference. They're especially in bodies like the NUCC, but it's very interesting. If you meet Hmong groups or Karen groups or um, Ta'ang groups, Kachin groups, their movements now are much broader than they used to be. They're involving civil society, political, social, faith-based, all kinds of actors are in these movements. And um, the problem is that they know that political solutions are needed. And that has been the case since 1948. So at root, until there's an opportunity to create political solutions, I don't think we're going to see a great deal of political leadership for many of these groups at the moment. Humanitarian imperatives, getting arms and ammunition, security, uh, fighting are more important on a day-to-day level than actually sitting down and sorting out their political agendas and with who.
0: So there's this famous saying from Mao that power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Maybe there will be some
1: new players. I think we're in a very difficult situation at the moment where, if you talk to young people themselves in in the country, they say this is not a rebellion, it's a revolution, which is an important distinction because rebellion means well, you'll just change the government or in the regime. you know if the NLD came into government, that would be a change of government, but that's not enough for a rebellion anymore. People want a revolution with something much far more fundamental, and when you s- consider the degree of bravery. And the areas in which these groups are operating and the scale they're operating on and the networks they have, the understanding they have, it is really quite remarkable. But as any revolution you know, faces, to translate this from simply um, being a revolutionary movement uh, and making goals, it becomes very, very difficult. And you'll find if you look at the cycles of groups like the KNU, KIO and so on, Newmont State Party, they have cycles. So the KNU was formed as uh, 47 arms, starting 49. For the first 20 years, it was very, very strong. But then it began to waste away or contract and began to lose its revolutionary f- fever. Same as with the KIO. You know, they formed in 61. They went through a 20-year cycle, and then in the early 90s, they were getting tired. And the majority of the population said, "Well, if we're not going to achieve this by arms struggle, isn't there another way?" Today, they're back, awake and alert, saying, "No, no." talking with the Myanmar military hasn't made solutions. So this is the problem, the tiredness, the difficulty of sustaining a long-term revolution to bring about change. And so there are a lot of things in in place. For example, you know, the the acting president of the NUG, Dua Lashila, who's a kind of civil society actor, a lawyer. So he's a very different kind of figurehead to what the, the revolutionary movements had in the past. And the question is how that will go on to be a sustainable movement. So. Groups like the FPNCC movements at the moment, like the WAR, they're all sitting there watching. They don't want to get involved. They learnt after 88. If you make a ceasefire with the government or you decide to fight with the government, it could take you 20 years to get out of that. So now groups are considering, do, do we think there's going to be another 20 years of conflict? If so, do we want to be sitting there with a ceasefire or do we want to be sitting there day-to-day combat? Which is the better way to bring about our objectives? And I would say that's where there's the biggest confusion. I don't think we should doubt the vision and hope of everybody for change. But this question of tactics is the real problem. My
0: impression is sometimes that the revolution agrees in one point mainly, which is we have to get rid of the Tatmadaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the sooner the better. But is this enough? Because it's only a negative vision. So what is the positive vision? Like What is the the idea? What do they want to achieve? What would be the new Myanmar?
1: Well, I think one of the problems, uh, and I think this is why it's so important, the media, civil society, human rights, all of these issues need discussing. So when, to go back to 2011, when there was going to be quasi-civilian transition and that new government under President Thane Singh came in, just before that, the ethnic groups, whether they were in ceasefires with the government or not, formed a new group called the UNFC, United Nationalities Federal Council. And it was very interesting because they didn't know what was going to happen next, but they put up at that stage, one of the reforms we want is a federal army. This is not about getting rid of the army. We need a federal army. We have to talk about this. And in a way, at independence in 48, it was, although it wasn't called federal, the state was federal, though not in name, and the army was multi-ethnic. So, In a way, that is the discussion which is needed today. It's just those discussions never take place. So it's about a federal army. It's not about getting rid of the army. It's about how can the army be part of this reform? And one of the problems with the NCA, you see, was that the NCA was one of the most complicated and labyrinthine peace agreements in the world. But the Myanmar military had no political will to implement it. They didn't do the monitoring committees. They didn't stop military operations. They didn't implement the political objectives. So so people are saying, well, what can we do to bring about reform? Demilitarization is a key, but the demilitarization has to include all sides. It can't be just about the armed ethnic groups just laying down their arms and accepting something. It has to be something which is a structure which brings together the whole country. Now, if this all sounds impossible, what I would say is we're closer to that kind of discussion taking place today than we've ever been in decades, because all the issues are out there. People know These problems will not be solved by just sticking plasters and temporary solutions or coercion. The only meaningful change will come by a kind of process which involves everyone. The NCA proved a failed model. So the challenge now is to learn from these mistakes of the past, put them in plain sight, and then move on into the future. Just as the ethnic groups have to look at their own failures, the democracy opposition have to look at their own failures, the Myanmar military do too. And I can tell you, I mentioned, you know, a Myanmar military officer before. These are not all bad people. Many of them realize they've made a mistake, but many of them thought they were joining the Myanmar military for nationalist reasons to defend their country. And over the decades, they've seen the perversion and the twisting of what they thought they were doing. So one has to talk to everybody. You can't just exclude people and say, well, they're on the wrong side, we can't talk to them. That has been the trouble. You will never make a peace process by just excluding certain groups. You have to find a dialogue which brings everybody in. So
0: I think it's interesting that you say that We are closer than ever to a kind of solution because now all the problems, the failures are open. We see it and we now can tackle these issues. What role do you think should or could the international community play?
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the most dangerous things. I mean, I don't think we're near to solutions, but if there was a political will for solutions, we're closer than we've been in a very, very long time. And I I really think meaningful solutions. You know, there, there are, are many amazing, you know, humanitarian, educational. The educational landscape in the country is very different today. They're people with real riv- vision. The problem is the international community. I've been very critical of Myanmar military, but I think you could point one thing that they, they genuinely feel they've done. That was under General Ne Win. He made the country isolationist. He was so non-aligned, he took Myanmar out of the non-aligned movement. But he did that for a reason, because at that time it was the Cold War. There was the Indochina War, there was separation in Korea, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, there was China to the north, there was Thailand to the south. So he just withdrew the country from international conflict and said, "Okay, we're going to keep our country preserved. And I think genuinely he felt he did a good job. Now, I'm not sure any of the other parties had that vision to do that. The danger is the Chinese backed the Communist Party uh, to a certain extent the groups on the Thai border were put by the West, let's say the CIA especially. But, but it, was, it was a kind of quasi-support because they were strong. They didn't need anything more than moral encouragement. There's a real danger now, you see, that the international community, and we look at the international landscape with Ukraine and what's going on in Africa and so on, we, we have to be aware there's a real danger that Myanmar could become part of a great game if people aren't very careful. There are people in Myanmar, like the Myanmar military, who will play that game. Already, you know, Putin's Russia is supposed to be its closest ally and so on. The Chinese are not naive. They're playing all sides. But what we are seeing is um, an Asian diplomat recently said, the trouble with the SAC is they haven't just thrown the country's problems to the Burmese people. They've thrown them to all the neighboring countries as well. They're even destroying ASEAN. ASEAN doesn't know how to respond. This is the danger now. So if you get like Thailand acting unilaterally, as it is at the moment, or or let's say Cambodia doing its initiatives or Japan doing its initiatives, yes, they might be done with some good intentions, but they're actually not helping kind of create a consensus and cohesion, which will really focus attention on what might bring around change. Now, I think international diplomats are aware of this.
0: When I talk to some people, some people nowadays discuss or think about that maybe. A solution like similar to Jugoslavia where the different parts will fall apart and we will have like not Myanmar as the whole, but like different states. Do you think that this is a reasonable way to go?
1: I don't think it will happen. There are many reasons for that. It hasn't happened until now and I, I can't see how it would happen in the future. Also what you've got to remember is that de facto a kind of breakup has always existed. And the Arakan army have proven that. You know, they've actually come in through the Indo-Bangladesh borderlands. They're now down to central and southern Rakhine state. So you've got an armed group, which is taking over the judiciary and administration. The Kachin state has long been like that. And then you've got the, we forget, there's these ceasefire areas like the Pa'o, who become a militia, a ceasefire group, the PNO, basically control the Pa'o area. You've got the Wa on the Chinese border. So we've got that. I think the bigger danger is that, if, if those differences are brought into points of tension, if these are brought of you know, positive things that can bring people together to do, um, you know, positive intercommunity community building and uh, processes together, economic development, that would be a, a plus point. But if it was used as a kind of reductio ad absurdum of making everything down to the smallest level, and and, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that. The regime are talking again about having another census. Their census of 135... Uh, ethnic groups is one of the biggest pieces of, you know, what well, I would call it fascist propaganda there is. There is no such thing as 135 ethnic groups as defined in Myanmar. And it's used to keep certain people out. It's used to divide and rule. So we, 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 we really look at, need to look at the absurdity of that. But on the other hand, that is the sort of thing which might be coming up. And that would cause the kind of fragmentation you're talking about. There, there is no way to bring unity and solidity, if the Myanmar military continue to use those kind of tactics, setting off one group against another, that that is a disaster.
0: So thank you very much, Martin, for sharing your insights and your knowledge. It was very interesting. I learned a lot. And I think like what we can take away from you that that you say, like, never ever has has there been, have the problems been so clear and open, and there has never been so much will to actually change it in a sustainable and fundamental way. but At the same time, there is a lack of clarity, a lack of cooperation, which is true for inside the country, but also as well for outside, like the international community is totally divided. Hopefully, there will be some kind of solution to this in the near future for Myanmar. So thank you very much.